0: CHAPTER TEN PART TWO OF HISTORY OF THE CATHOLIC CHURCH FROM THE RENAISSANCE TO THE FRENCH REVOLUTION VOLUME TWO BY REV. JAMES McCAFFREY. THIS LibriVox RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. IN APRIL 1635 PARLIAMENT WAS DISSOLVED, AND ALMOST IMMEDIATELY THE LORD DEPUTY MADE PREPARATIONS FOR ACTING UNDER THE COMMISSION FOR inquiring INTO DEFECTIVE TITLES GRANTED TO HIM BY THE KING. ALL THE PROTESTANTS ARE FOR PLANTATIONS, HE WROTE, AND ALL THE OTHERS ARE AGAINST THEM. If the Catholic juries refuse to find a verdict in favour of the king, then recourse must be had to Parliament where a Protestant majority is assured. Portions of Tipperary, Clare, and Kilkenny were secured without much difficulty, but nothing less than the whole of Connaught could satisfy the deputy. Common was the first county selected, and the commissioners, including the Lord Deputy, arrived in Boyle to hold the inquiry, July 1635 the jury having been informed by whitworth that whether they found in his favour or not the king was determined to assert his claims to their county and that their only hope of mercy was their prompt obedience delivered the required verdict sligo and mayo also made their submission in galway however the jury found against the king in consequence of this the sheriff was fined one thousand pounds and placed under bail to appear before the star chamber and the jurymen were threatened with severe punishment they were fined four thousand pounds each, and ordered to be imprisoned till they should pay the full amount. In this way the whole of Connaught, with the exception of Leitrim, which was planted already, together with a great part of Clare, Tipperary, and Kilkenny, was confiscated to the crown. But Wentworth postponed the plantation of Connaught to a more favourable period, and before any such period arrived he had lost both his office and his head." the danger to charles i from the scotch covenanters was already apparent and charles urged his deputy to raise an army in ireland during the years 1639 and 1640 the work of training the army many of the officers of which and most of the soldiers were catholics was pushed forward but the triumph of the scots and the execution of the earl of strafford in april 1641 made it impossible to use it for the purpose for which it was designed Acting on the instigation of the English Parliament, Charles sent an order that the Irish troops should be disbanded, and added that he had licensed certain officers to transport 8,000 troops to the aid of any of the sovereigns of Europe friendly to England. For one reason or another, very few of the soldiers left Ireland, as both their own leaders and the King knew well that their services would soon be required at home parliament had met in ireland in march sixteen forty and having voted several subsidies to aid the king it adjourned when it met again in sixteen forty one the catholics were actually in the majority and seemed determined to hold their own the king wrote to confirm the graces and to suggest that the bill should be introduced to confirm defective titles in tipperary clare and connaught but the obstructive tactics of the earl of ormond and the unfavourable attitude of the lords justices sir william parsons and sir william towards catholic claims prevented anything being done parliament was adjourned till the ninth november but before that date arrived the issues had been transferred to another in a different court from sixteen thirty two till sixteen forty the deputy was doing his best to rob a large portion of the catholic owners of their property on the grounds of defective titles and though in many districts the protestant bishops and ministers created considerable difficulties for their catholic neighbours still the religious persecution was carried out only in a half-hearted manner the king was shrewd enough to recognize the important part that might be played by the irish catholics in the civil struggle that he foresaw and he was anxious not to antagonize their leaders this period of comparative calm was providential for the church in ireland by enabling it to organize its forces and to prepare for the terrible days that were soon to come in accordance with the advice given by archbishop lombard years before rome decided to fill several of the sees that had been left vacant Hugh mccalwell Cavallis, a distinguished irish franciscan who had been instrumental in founding the college of st anthony at louvain and whose theological works caused him to be regarded by his contemporaries as the ablest theologian of the Scottish school in europe was appointed archbishop of armagh sixteen twenty six but he died in rome a few weeks after his consecration Less than two years later it was decided to transfer Hugh O'Reilly from Kilmore to the primatial sea, 1628. Thomas Fleming had been appointed to Dublin in 1623, and despite the efforts of his enemies he succeeded in eluding the vigilance of those who wished to drive him from Ireland. Malachy of who had acted for years as vicar apostolic of his native diocese of Killaloe, was appointed to Tuam, 1630, in succession to Florence Conry, and thomas walsh a native of waterford was promoted to the see of cashel sixteen twenty six amongst the distinguished ecclesiastics who were promoted to irish dioceses during the reign of james i and charles were the learned david roth ossory sixteen eighteen Roach, mcgowan raucous de cruce who had done so much for the restoration of the dominican houses in ireland kildare sixteen twenty nine and heber mcman down sixteen forty two clogger sixteen forty three as a result of the long persecution and of the absence of bishops from so many dioceses a certain amount of disorganization might be detected in several departments and to remedy this provincial synods were held to lay down new regulations and to adjust the position of the church to the altered circumstances of the country a synod was held at kilkenny sixteen twenty seven which was attended by bishops from leinster and munster another very important one the decrees of which were confirmed by the holy see was held for the province of tuam in sixteen thirty two and a third attended by the leinster bishops was held in the county kilkenny in sixteen forty the irish colleges on the continent continued to pour able and zealous young priests into the country while the colleges for the education of the franciscans dominicans and jesuits supplied new recruits to replenish the ranks of the religious orders the capuchin founded irish colleges on the continent at lilly antwerp and at sedan and so earnestly did they work in ireland that a special letter in praise of the capuchins was forwarded to rome by a number of the bishops in sixteen forty two the results of this renewed activity were soon apparent in every part of the country thus for example in a report presented sixteen thirty one from the diocese of elphin then ruled by bishop Oechius, Egan it can be seen that although all the churches including the cathedral had been destroyed or taken possession of by the protestants there were at the time forty priests at work in the diocese the decrees of the council of trent had been promulgated the parishes had been rearranged and the learning of the parish priests appointed had been tested by examination regular synods visitations and conferences of the clergy were being held and steps had been taken to ensure that the people should be instructed fully in their religion in the parliament of sixteen forty one the catholics were in the majority and they insisted that the graces must be confirmed the king granted their demands and the bill was actually on its way to ireland when the lords justices parsons and borlase who administered the government of the country prorogued the session They wished for no settlement with the Catholics, lest the settlement might put an end to their hopes of a plantation, and the Earl of Ormond tried also to block the passage of the bill, in the hope of saving the king from the odium which he would incur in England and Scotland, by granting toleration to the Irish Catholics. The Catholic noblemen of Ireland, whether Irish or Anglo-Irish, had good reason to complain they had seen the catholics driven out of the good lands of ulster to make way for english and scottish planters and they well knew that the dangerous similar transactions in connaught munster and leinster had not passed away with the death of strafford they had seen the operation of the court of Wards, and they could not fail to realise that as a result of its work the landowners of ireland would soon be dispossessed or Protestantized. they knew something of the protestant inquisition courts as run by the ministers and bishops Of the persecution of their clergy the fees and fines levied on the unfortunate catholic peasantry and of the still graver danger that lay before them in case the covenanters and the puritans were to overthrow charles i or to succeed in forcing him to accept their policy were they to remain passive they believed they could have no hope of redress or even of safety and hence many of them made up their minds that the time for negotiations had passed and that they could rely only on force never again were they likely to get such a favourable opportunity england was torn by internal dissensions the disbanded irish soldiers who had been trained for service against the scots were still in the country and with so many distinguished irishmen scattered throughout the countries of europe there was good hope that they might get assistance from their co-religionists on the continent the distinguished waterford franciscan brother luke Wadding, who had founded the college of st isidore in rome and had taken such a prominent part in the foundation of the irish college was in rome ready to plead the cause of his countrymen at the papal court his fame as a scholar was known throughout europe and his active support could not fail to produce its effect in europe and particularly in spain where he was esteemed so highly by philip the fourth owen roe O'Neill, who had achieved a remarkable distinction in the army of spain by his gallant defence of arras against the french colonel preston uncle of lord germiston and a host of others who had learned the art of war in france spain and the netherlands were willing to return to Ireland and to place their swords at the disposal of their country. Early in 1641, Rory O'More, who was closely connected with both the Irish and the Anglo-Irish nobles, suggested to Lord Maguire of Enniskillen the idea of an appeal to arms, and hinted at the possibility of a union between the Irish nobles and the Lords of the Pale. In a short time, most of the important leaders of the North, Sir Phelim O'Neill, turlow o'neill lord maguire ewe MacMahon, arthur mcgenis of down philip and Miles o'reilly of cavan had come to an understanding the war was to begin in ulster on the night of the twenty third october sixteen forty one and on the same night an attempt was made to seize dublin castle the latter portion of the programme could not be carried out owing to the action of an informer who betrayed maguire and Hugh MacMahon to the lord's justices but at the appointed time the Irish Catholics of Ulster rose almost to a man, and in a very short time most of the strong places in the province were in their hands. In such a movement it was almost impossible for the leaders to prevent some excesses, particularly as many of the men who took part in it had been driven from their lands to make way for the planters, and had suffered terribly from the harshness and cruelty to which they and their families had been subjected naturally they seized their own again and in some cases they may have used more violence than the situation required but it is now admitted by impartial historians that the wild stories of a wholesale massacre of protestants are without any more solid foundation than the fact that the protestants were for the most part driven out of ulster in much the same way as the catholics had been driven to the mountains thirty years before most of the few who were killed were probably struck down while attempting to defend their homes, and in no case is there evidence to prove that the leaders countenance unnecessary violence or murder. If the historian wishes to look for organized lawlessness and murder, he can find it much more easily in the campaign of the infamous Sir Charles Coote, or in the raids carried out by the forces of the Scotch Covenanters of the North. The Catholic lords of the Pale hastened to Dublin Castle to offer their services against the northern rebels, but they were received so discourteously by the Lords Justices that they recognised the absolute necessity of joining with the Catholics of Ulster. In announcing their defection, the Lords Justices positively gloated over the special prospect of having the province of Leinster planted with English settlers, December 1641. The action of the English Parliament in decreeing that for the future there should be no toleration allowed to Irish Catholics december sixteen forty one and in putting up for sale two million five hundred thousand acres of fertile land in Ireland, the proceeds to be expended in a war of extermination, strengthened the hands of the Irish leaders and helped to bring over the waverers to their side the catholic clergy had sympathised with the movement from the beginning but they had exerted themselves particularly in moderating the fury of their countrymen and in protecting the protestants both laymen and clerics from unnecessary violence but as there was a danger that the movement would break up and that the irish forces would be divided it was necessary for the bishops to take action religion was nearly the only bond that was likely to unite the irish and the anglo-irish nobles and the church was the only institution that could give the movement unity and permanency a meeting of the bishops and vicars of the northern province was held at kells may 1642 under the presidency of dr u o'reilly archbishop of armagh they prescribed a three days fast the public recitation of the rosary and the litanies and a general communion for the success of the war issued a sentence of excommunication against murderers mutilators thieves robbers etc together with all their aiders and abettors denounced the catholic irishmen who refused to make common cause with their countrymen and ordered all bishops vicar's general parish priests and heads of religious houses to spare no pains to raise funds immediately for the support of the soldiers in may sixteen forty two a national synod was held at kilkenny it was attended by the primate of Armagh, the archbishop of tuam and cashel by most of the bishops either personally or by procurators, and by representatives of the religious orders and of the secular clergy. They declared that the war was being waged for the defence of the Catholic religion, for the preservation of the rights and prerogatives of the King, for the just and lawful immunities, liberties, and rights of Ireland, for the protection of the lives, fortunes, goods, and possessions of the Catholics of Ireland, and that it was a just war in which all Catholics should join. They condemned murder, robbery, and violence, advised all their countrymen to lay aside racial and provincial differences, took measures for the restoration of the cathedrals and churches to their owners, exhorted all, both clergy and laymen, to preserve unity, and called upon the priests to offer up mass at least once a week for the success of the war. During the year 1642 the war had spread into all parts of Ireland, and most of the prominent nobles, with the exception of the Earl of Clanricard, had taken the field owen roe o'neill and colonel preston had arrived with some of the irish veterans from the continent and had brought with them supplies of arms and ammunition urban the eighth had forwarded a touching letter addressed to the clergy and people of ireland february sixteen forty two and had contrived to send large supplies of weapons and powder a general assembly of irish catholics was called to meet at kilkenny in october sixteen forty two There were present eleven spiritual peers, fourteen lay peers, and two hundred and twenty-six representatives from the cities and counties of Ireland, under the presidency of Lord Mount Generals were appointed to lead the forces in the different provinces, as, unfortunately, owing to the jealousy between the Anglo-Irish and the Irish nobles, Owen Roe O'Neill could not be appointed commander of the National Army. Arrangements were made for sending ambassadors to the principal courts of Europe, for the establishment of a printing press for raising money and for the promotion of education the irish franciscans of louvain were asked to transfer their press and library to ireland to help in the creation of a great school of irish learning father luke wadding who was appointed the irish representative at the papal court and agents were dispatched to france spain the netherlands and to several of the german states urban the eighth yielding to the entreaties of the irish ambassador gave generous assistance and wrote to nearly all the catholic rulers of europe recommending them to assist their co-religionists in ireland in sixteen forty three the well-known oratorian father francisco scarampi landed in wexford as the accredited agent of the pope bringing with him supplies of money and arms hardly however had he arrived when he discovered that though the irish armies had met with considerable success both against the royalist forces in dublin and the scotch covenanters in the north negotiations had been opened up for an extended truce the anglo-irish nobles had never been enthusiastic for the war as an irish war they fought merely to preserve their estates and to secure a certain degree of liberty of worship but in their hearts they were more anxious about the cause of the king than about the cause of ireland the marquis of ormond whom the king had created his lord lieutenant in ireland had many friends amongst the lords of the pale and by means of his agents he succeeded in bringing about a cessation, September 1643. The Irish Catholics were to send agents to the King for a full discussion of their grievances, and were to help him with supplies. Anxious to secure the help of the Irish Catholics, and fearing to give a handle to his parliamentary opponents by granting religious toleration, Charles was in a very difficult position, and to make matters worse, Ormond was determined not to yield to the demands of the Catholics. He was prepared to make a conditional promise that the laws against them would not be enforced, but beyond that he was resolved not to go. After long and fruitless negotiations with Ormond, the war was renewed, 1644. Representatives from France and Spain had arrived in Kilkenny, and it was thought that if the Pope could be induced to send an such a measure would strengthen the hands of the Irish ambassadors on the continent by the request of sir richard bellings secretary to the supreme council innocent x consented to send giovanni battista runuccini as his representative to ireland 1645. the latter landed at kinmar in october and proceeded almost immediately to kilkenny in the meantime charles i was being hard pressed in england and as he could have no hope of inducing ormond to agree to such terms as would satisfy the catholics of ireland he commissioned the earl of glamorgan himself a catholic and closely connected with some of the irish families by marriage to go to kilkenny and to procure assistance from the catholic confederation at all costs shortly after his arrival he concluded a treaty in the name of the king august sixteen forty five in which he guaranteed the free and public exercise of the roman catholic religion all churches possessed by the irish catholics at any time since october sixteen forty one were to be left in their hands and all churches in ireland other than such as are now actually enjoyed by his majesty's protestant subjects were to be given back to the catholics all jurisdiction claimed by protestant bishops or ministers over irish catholics was to be abolished and all temporalities possessed by the catholic clergy since october sixteen forty one were to be retained by them two-thirds of the income however to be paid to the king during the continuance of the war charles had already addressed a letter to the nuncio promising to carry out whatever terms Glamorgan would concede and adding the hope that though this was the first letter he had ever written to any minister of the pope it would not be the last the terms were to be kept a secret but in October 1645, Archbishop O'Quilly of Thome was killed near Sligo in a skirmish between the Confederate and Parliamentary forces, and a copy of the treaty which he had in his possession fell into the hands of the enemy. As soon as it was published, it created a great sensation in England, and Charles immediately repudiated it. Glamorgan was arrested in Dublin by Ormond, but was released after a few weeks, and returned coolly to Kilkenny to conduct further negotiations. Since his arrival in Kilkenny, 1645, the nuncio was anxious to break off negotiations with Ormond, and to devote all the energies of the country to the prosecution of the war. But the Anglo-Irish of the Pale were bent upon accepting any terms that Ormond might offer, and soon the Supreme Council was divided into two sections, one favouring the nuncio, the other supporting Ormond. Negotiations had been opened directly with Rome by Queen Henrietta through her agent, Sir Kenelm Digby. In return for promises of men and money, the latter signed a treaty even much more favourable to the Irish Catholics than that which had been concluded, with Glamorgan, 1645. But as the original of this treaty had not come to hand, and as it was feared that there was little hope of its being put in force, the Supreme Council patched up an agreement with Ormond, March 1646. Although the latter had got a free hand from the King, he granted very little to the Catholics. The oath of supremacy was to be abolished in the next Parliament, as were to be also all statutory penalties and disabilities. His Majesty's Catholic subjects were to be recommended to His Majesty's favour for further concessions. All educational disabilities of Catholics were to be removed, and all offices, civil and military, were to be thrown open to them. Even this treaty was kept a secret, but in the meantime the Confederation should send troops to the assistance of the King. But before the troops could be sent, Charles was driven to take refuge with the Scots at Newcastle, May 1646, from which place he wrote forbidding Ormond to proceed further in treaty with the rebels or to make any conditions with them. Notwithstanding Renatini's earnest entreaties, the majority of the Supreme Council insisted on accepting Ormond's terms. The Confederation had been so weakened by dissensions that General Monroe thought he could march south and capture Kilkenny, but at Bimburb he found his way barred by the forces of O'Neill, and he was obliged to retreat to Coolareen, having left a great portion of his army dead on the field, and his standards, guns, and supplies in the hands of O'Neill. 5th June 1646 The news of the great victory was brought to the Nuncio at Limerick, where the captured banners were carried in procession through the streets, and deposited in the cathedral. General Preston had also scored some successes in connaught so that once again the tide seemed to have turned in favour of the confederates Runuccini was more than ever determined to refuse half measures such as were being offered by the terms of Ormond's treaty he summoned a meeting of the bishops in Waterford august sixteen forty six and after long discussion it was agreed that those who accepted Ormond's terms were guilty of perjury because they had thereby broken the terms of the oath of confederation According to this oath, the members had pledged themselves to be content with nothing less than the free and public exercise of their religion, while Ormond left nearly everything to the good will of the king, from whom nothing could be expected, considering the state of affairs in England. In spite of all remonstrances, the Supreme Council published the peace in Kilkenny, but their messengers were refused admittance into several of the cities of the south. Ormond was invited to Kilkenny, where he received a royal reception from his friends, but O'Neill marched south and compelled Ormond to beat a hasty retreat towards Dublin. Runicini returned to Kilkenny, and some of the prominent adherents of Ormond were arrested. A new supreme council was chosen, and O'Neill and Preston were commissioned to march on Dublin, but, though they brought their armies close to the city, yet, owing to underhand communications carried on between Ormond's agent and the Earl of Clanrickard and Preston, and the jealousy between the generals, the attack was not made. A new General Assembly had been elected, and met at Kilkenny, 10th of January, 1647. After a long discussion, the Ormond Peace was condemned, and a new form of oath was drawn up to be taken by all the Confederates. Ormond, who could have done so much for his master, had he obeyed his instructions and made some satisfactory offers to the Irish Catholics, surrendered Dublin into the hands of the Parliamentarians, and fled to France. To make matters worse, Preston was defeated by the parliamentarians at Summerhill, August 1647, and Lord Inchiquin was carrying all before him in the South. Everywhere he went he had acted with great savagery and was especially violent in his opposition to the Catholic religion, but early in 1648 he changed his politics and declared for the King against the Parliament. Immediately the former friends of Ormond on the Supreme Council insisted on making terms with Lord Inchiquin. Runicini opposed such a step as a betrayal, and his action was approved by a majority of the bishops. The Nuncio left the city and went towards Maryborough, where O'Neill was encamped. In May 1648 the truce with Lord and was proclaimed, and in a few days Runicini issued a sentence of excommunication against all who would receive it, and of interdict against the towns which recognized it. The Supreme Council replied by appealing to the Pope, the only result was that the division and confusion became more general several of the bishops and clergy were to be found on both sides the supreme council dismissed o'neill from his office and afterwards declared him a traitor the nuncio went to galway from which port he sailed in sixteen forty nine though it is difficult to entertain anything but the greatest contempt for the ormond faction on the supreme council and though renuccini was an honest man who did his best to carry out his instructions still he did not understand perfectly the situation. He allowed himself to show too openly his preference for O'Neill, and displayed too great an inclination to have recourse to high-handed methods. His arrest of the Ormandist faction on the Supreme Council, and the censures which he leveled against his opponents, however justifiable these things might have been in themselves, were not calculated to restore unity and confidence." Orman returned to Ireland in 1648, and received a great welcome from those of the Supreme Council, who were opposed to Minnuchini and O'Neill. In January 1649 he concluded a peace with them, by which he guaranteed that in the next Parliament to be held in Ireland, the free exercise of the Catholic religion should be conceded, that the act of uniformity and the act of royal supremacy should be abolished, that all offices, civil and military, should be thrown open to Catholics, provided they were willing to take a simple oath of allegiance that all plans for any further plantations in munster and leinster and connaught should be abandoned that all acts of attainder etc passed against irish catholics since october sixteen forty one should be treated as null and void that the clergy should not be molested in regard to the churches church livings etc until his majesty upon full consideration of the desires of the catholics formulated in a free parliament should express his further pleasure and that the regular clergy, who would accept this peace, should be allowed to continue to hold their houses and possessions. Further concessions were to be dependent on the king's wishes. The Catholic Confederation, as such, was dissolved, and Ormond was installed as Lord Lieutenant to govern the country in conjunction with twelve commissioners of trust appointed by the Confederates. But O'Neill and his army still held out against any terms with Ormond, and a large number of the cities refused to hold any communications with him, still he hoped to capture dublin from the parliamentarians before help could arrive from england but he suffered a terrible defeat at rathmine's second august sixteen forty nine less than a fortnight later Oliver cromwell arrived in dublin with a large force to crush both the royalists and the catholics cromwell having taken a little time for his troops to recruit marched on drageta then held for the king by sir arthur aston and so earnestly did he push forward the siege that in a short time he carried the city by assault and put most of the garrison and a large number of the citizens to death over a thousand were slaughtered in st peter's church to which they had fled for refuge and special vengeance was meted out to the clergy none of them who were recognised being spared similar scenes of wholesale butchery took place at wexford into which his army gained admission by treachery ormond was unable to make headway against such a commander and frightened at last by the prospect that opened out before him he made overtures to o'neill for a reconciliation o'neill agreed to lend his aid against cromwell he sent a portion of his army south and he himself though ill was already on the march when he died at Claugater, six november sixteen forty nine his death at such a time was an irreparable loss both to the catholic religion and to ireland had he lived and had ormond and his faction co with him the campaign of cromwell might have had a very different termination during the closing months of sixteen forty nine the situation in ireland seemed hopeless though as an unscrupulous diplomatist ormond had few equals he was utterly worthless as a soldier and to make matters worse he was still distrusted by the great mass of the irish people in the hope of restoring unity and of encouraging the people to continue the struggle A synod of bishops and clergy assembled at Clonmacnoise, December 1649. They issued a declaration warning the people that they could expect no mercy from the English parliament, that the wholesale extirpation of Catholicism was intended, as was evidenced by the actions of Cromwell, and that the lands of the Irish Catholics were to be handed over to English adventurers. They called upon them to forget past differences, to sink racial and personal jealousies, and to unite against the common enemy but the country distrusted Ormond, and refused to rally to his standard. Another meeting, consisting of the bishops and of the commissioners of trust, was held at Laugree, in which it was agreed that there should be a general levy of all men fit to bear arms, and the monastery of Kilbegan was fixed as the place of rendezvous. Several of the cities and leading men refused, however, to take any part in a movement controlled by Ormond, and as the last desperate resort, at the meeting of the bishops held at Jamestown, 12th August, 1650, The bishops declared that there could be no hope of unity unless ormond surrendered his trust to some person in whom the entire country had confidence very reluctantly ormond agreed to this request and left ireland in december having appointed the earl of clanrickard as his successor the latter was a catholic who had played a very ignoble part throughout the war had he displayed years before but half the energy he displayed in its later stages things might never have come to such a pass as it was, Cromwell made great progress in the south, though he was forced to raise the siege of Waterford, and suffered a bad defeat at Clonmel from the nephew of O'Neill. He left Ireland in May 1650, and entrusted the command to Ireton. Owing to the state of disunion, Ireton was enabled to take city after city. Limerick was taken in 1651, and Terence O'Brien, Bishop of Emly, was put to death. Bishop McMahon of Clogher, who had assumed the leadership of the army of Owen Roe O'Neill, after the latter's death, was defeated as 1650. Later on he was captured and put to death, his head being impaled on the gates of Enniskillen as a warning to his co-religionists. The submission of Clan Rickard in 1652 practically put an end to the war, and before another year had elapsed, all effective resistance had ceased. During the Kilkenny Confederation, the Catholic Church was restored to its original position, in the districts controlled by the confederates, the bishops and clergy were allowed to occupy once more their houses and churches wherever these had not been destroyed, and religious communities of both men and women were set up again close to their former monasteries and convents, though at the same time the catholic lords of the pale were alert lest they should be asked to return any of the ecclesiastical or monastic lands that had been granted to them by royal patent in dublin and wherever ormond and the royalists had authority both clergy and people enjoyed complete toleration but in certain portions of the north and wherever the puritans and parliamentarians held sway persecution was still the order of the day when dublin was surrendered to the parliamentarians sixteen forty seven the priests and later on all catholics were expelled from the city in the south of ireland lord and acted in the most savage manner in cashel and generally in the cities which he conquered while the parliamentarian party in the north showed no mercy to the catholics who fell into their hands after the arrival of cromwell the prospect became even more gloomy though he announced that he would interfere with no man's religion he declared that on no account could he tolerate the celebration of mass the clergy were put to the sword in druggieda and wexford the archbishop of tuam was killed during the war sixteen forty five boetius egan bishop of ross fell into the hands of lord broghill and was put to a cruel death because, instead of advising the garrison of Carrigdrohid to surrender, he encouraged them to continue the struggle, 1650. Terence Albert O'Brien, Bishop of Emly, was captured by Ireton after the Siege of Limerick and was hanged. Heber MacMahon, Bishop of Clogger, was put to death by the orders of Coote, 1650. Bishop Roth of Ossery died as a result of the sufferings he endured, and Bishop French of Ferns, after undergoing terrible trials in Ireland, was obliged to make his escape to the continent in arranging the terms of surrender the cromwellian generals sometimes excluded the bishops and clergy from protection and at best they granted them only a short time to prepare for leaving the country the presence of the priests was regarded as a danger for the projected settlement of ireland and hence the order was given sixteen fifty that they should be arrested in sixteen fifty a reward of twenty pounds was offered to any one who would betray the hiding-place of any jesuits priests friars monks or nuns at first those clergy who were captured were sent into france and spain but later on large numbers of them were shipped to the Barbados thus for example in sixteen fifty five an instruction was sent to sir charles coote that the priests and friars then captive in galway who were over forty years of age should be banished to portugal or france while those under that age were to be shipped away for the barbados or other american plantations for those who returned death was the penalty that was laid down since the priests still contrived to elude their pursuers by disguising themselves as labourers peasants beggars gardeners etc an order was issued in sixteen fifty five that a general search should be made throughout ireland for the capture of all priests five pounds was to be paid to any one who would arrest the priest and more might be awarded if the individual taken were of special importance when the jails were well filled another instruction was issued that the priests should be brought together at carrick fergus for transportation Here it was claimed that some offered to submit to the terms of the government, rather than allow themselves to be sent away, but as the statement comes from an unreliable source it should be received with caution. In 1657 Major Morgan, representative of Wicklow, in the United Parliament of England and Ireland declared, We have three beasts to destroy that lay heavy burthens upon us. The first is the wolf, on whom we lay five pounds a head of a dog, and ten pounds if a bitch. The second beast is a priest— on whose head we lay ten pounds and if he be eminent more the third beast is a tory on whose head if he be a public tory we lay twenty pounds and forty shillings on a private tory towards the end of the protectorate the government instead of transporting the priests abroad sent them in crowds to the island of Arran and to innis Boffin, the lord deputy in council wrote colonel thomas herbert sixteen fifty-eight. Did in july last give order for payment of one hundred pounds upon account to colonel sadlier to be issued as he should conceive fit for maintenance of such popish priests as are or should be confined to the isle of boffin according to sixpence daily allowing building cabins and the like it is not doubted but care was taken accordingly and for that the judges in their respective circuits may probably find cause for sending much more priests to that island I am commanded to signify thus much unto you, that you may not be wanting to take such care in this business, as according to former directions and provision is made. Already in 1642 the English Parliament had passed measures for the wholesale confiscation of Catholic Ireland, and had pledged the land to these adventurers, who subscribed money to carry on the war in sixteen fifty two when the reduction of ireland was practically complete it was deemed prudent to undertake the work of clearing leinster and munster of its old owners to prepare the way for the adventurers and for the soldiers whose arrears were paid by grants of farms or estates according to the terms of the act and of the instructions issued in connection with it all irish catholics were commanded to transplant themselves to connaught before the first may sixteen fifty four under pain of being put to death by court-martial if they were found after that date east of the shannon exceptions were indeed made in the case of those women who were married to english protestants before december sixteen fifty provided that they themselves had become protestant in case of boys under fourteen and girls under twelve in protestant service and who would be brought up protestants and lastly in case of those who could prove that for the previous ten years they had maintained a constant good affection towards the parliament the order to transplant was notified throughout ireland and a commission was set up at Loughree to consider claims and to make assignments of land in connaught all of which was to be at the disposal of the irish except the prescribed territory along the seaboard even the inhabitants of galway who had submitted only on the express condition of retaining their lands were driven out of the city and the city itself was handed over to the corporations, of Gloucester and Liverpool, to recoup them for the losses they had suffered during the Civil War. Petitions began to pour in for mercy, or at least for an extension to the time limit, but though on the latter point some concessions were made, few individuals were allowed any reprieve. The landowners were marked men, and they were obliged to go. It would be impossible to describe the hardship and misery suffered by those who were forced to leave their own homes, and to seek refuge in what was to them a strange country. To ease the situation, large numbers of the men capable of bearing arms were shipped to Spain, or to others of the continental countries, but soon it was thought that this was bad policy, likely only to serve some of the English rivals. It was then determined to transport large numbers to the West Indies, the Barbados, Jamaica, and the Caribbean Islands. Shiploads of boys and girls were seized, according to orders, from England, and were sent out of the country under the most awful conditions, to a land where a fate awaited many of them that was worse than death. "'The magistrates had no scruple in committing all Catholics who remained east of the Shannon and who were brought before them as vagrants, and then they were hurried off to the coast.' At first the idea was to remove the native population entirely from Leinster and Munster, thus the soldiers and adventurers might be contaminated, and stern measures were taken to prevent any of the officers or men from taking Irish wives. Ireton laid it down that any officer or soldier who dared to marry an Irish girl until she had been examined by a competent board to see whether her conversion flowed, from a real work of God upon her heart, should be punished severely. But later on petitions poured in from the new Protestant landowners to be allowed to keep Catholics as servants and laborers, and on the understanding that the masters would utilize this opportunity to spread the true religion, their requests were granted. Some obtained dispensations, or at least managed to secure delays, others probably were able to come to terms with the soldiers to whom their farms had fallen in the general lottery, and others still preferred to risk the danger of transportation by remaining in their own district, rather than to seek a new home. Had the protectorate lasted long enough, the policy of transplanting might have succeeded. But as it was, the Cromwellian planters soon disappeared or became merged into the native population, and in spite of all the bloodshed and robbery, the people of Ireland generally were as devoted to the Catholic religion in 1659 as they had been ten years before. When it became clear from the course of events in England that Charles II was about to be restored to the throne, Lord Broghill and Sir Charles Coote Both of whom had helped to crush the Irish royalists and had profited largely by the revolution, hastened to show their zeal for the king's cause. The Catholics who had fought so loyally for his father hoped that at last justice would be done to them by reinstating them in the lands from which they had been driven by the enemies of the king. But Charles was determined to take no risks. He sent over the Duke of Ormond, the most dangerous enemy of the Catholic religion in Ireland, as Lord Lieutenant, 1660. A Parliament was called in 1661, and as the Catholics had been driven from the corporate towns during the Cromwellian regime, and as the Cromwellian planters were still in possession, the House of Commons was to all intents and purposes Protestant. An act of settlement was passed whereby Catholics who could prove their innocence of the rebellion were to be restored, but the definition of innocence in the case was so complicated that it was hoped few Catholics, if any, would succeed in establishing their claims. 1661 a court of claims composed of five protestant commissioners was set up to examine the individual cases but in a short time when it was discovered that a large number of catholics were succeeding in satisfying the conditions laid down by law for restoration to their property an outcry was raised by the planters and the court of claims was suspended 1664 the act of explanation was then passed to simplify the proceedings as a result of which act two-thirds of the land of ireland was left in the hands of the protestant settlers close on sixty of the catholic nobility were restored as a special favour by the king but a large body of those who had been driven out by cromwell were left without any compensation in consequence of the cromwellian persecution nearly all the bishops and a large body of the clergy both secular and regular had been driven from ireland but after the accession of charles who was known to be personally friendly to the catholics many of them began to return it would be a mistake however to imagine that the persecution had ceased or that the laws against the clergy were not put in force in several districts ormond returned to ireland as hostile to catholicity as he had been before he was driven into exile and as he thought that he had a particular grievance against the irish bishops he was determined to stir up the clergy against them to divide the catholics into warring factions and by favouring one side to create a royalist catholic party as distinct from the ultramontane or papal party for this work he had at hand a useful instrument in the person of father peter walsh a franciscan friar who had distinguished himself as a bitter opponent of the nuncio and as a leader of the remandist faction in the supreme council in sixteen sixty one it was determined by some leading members both lay and clerical to present an address of welcome to charles the second but by the influence of walsh and others the address instead of being a mere protestation of loyalty was framed on the model of the Oath of Allegiance, 1605, which had been condemned more than once by the Pope. Many of the Catholic lords indicated their agreement with this address or remonstrance, as it was called, and some of the clergy, deceived by the counsels of Father Walsh, expressed their willingness to adhere to its terms. Ormond, who spent money freely in subsidizing Walsh and his supporters, had good reason to be delighted with the success of his schemes grave disputes broke out among the clergy which the government took care to foment by patronizing the remonstrants and by wrecking its vengeance on the anti-remonstrants on the ground of their alleged disloyalty to bring matters to a crisis it was arranged by walsh and ormond that a meeting of the bishops vicars and heads of religious orders should be held in dublin june sixteen sixty six in addition to dr o'reilly archbishop of armagh bishops plunkett of Ardal and lynch of kilfenora There were present a number of vicars of vacant dioceses, together with representatives of the Franciscans, Dominicans, Augustinians, Capuchins, and Jesuits. Dr. O'Reilly spoke strongly against the terms of the remonstrance as being highly disrespectful to the Pope, and the majority of those present supported his contention. They expressed their willingness to present an address of loyalty from which the objectionable clauses should be omitted but Walsh, dissatisfied with anything but a complete submission, shifted the ground of the debate by endeavouring to secure the acceptance of the assembly of the pro-Gallican declaration of the Sorbonne, 1663. Even still his efforts were far from being successful, and the meeting was dissolved by Ormond. The primate was kept a prisoner in Dublin for some months, and then transported to the continent, while the other members present were obliged to make their escape from Ireland, or to go into hiding." By orders of Ormond, close watch was kept upon the clergy, who sided against the remonstrants, and many of them were thrown into prison. In 1669 Ormond was recalled, and after a short time Lord Berkeley was sent over as Lord Lieutenant. Though he was instructed to execute the laws against the titular archbishops, bishops, and vicar generals that have threatened or excommunicated the remonstrants, yet as a personal friend of the duke of york and as one who knew intimately the king's own views he acted in as tolerant a manner towards catholics as it was possible for him to do considering the state of mind of the officials and of the protestant bishops and clergy from sixteen seventy till the arrival of armand once more in sixteen seventy seven though several proclamations were issued and though here and there individual priests were persecuted catholics as a body enjoyed comparative calm the holy see took advantage of this to appoint to several of the vacant sees among those appointed at this time were oliver plunkett to armagh sixteen sixty nine peter talbot to dublin which had not been filled since the death of dr fleming in sixteen fifty five william burgot to cashel sixteen sixty nine and james lynch to tuam dr plunkett had accompanied scrampy to rome sixteen forty five where he read a particularly brilliant course as a student of the irish college and afterwards acted as a professor in the propaganda till his nomination to armagh dr talbot was born at malahide joined the society of jesus was a close personal friend of charles the second during the latter's exile on the continent and after the restoration enjoyed a pension from the king shortly after his appointment an outcry was raised against him because he and his brother colonel talbot were supposed to be urging a re-examination of the act of settlement and charles the second was weak enough to sign a decree banishing him from the kingdom he returned to ireland only in sixteen seventy seven the year in which ormond arrived for his last term of office as lord lieutenant already shaftesbury's two subordinates titus Oates. Tonge were concocting the infamous story of the popish plot in the hopes of securing the exclusion of the duke of york from the throne in this plot according to the account of its lying authors the catholics of ireland were to play an important part the jesuits and the archbishops of dublin and tuam being supposed to be particularly active in October 1678 a proclamation was issued ordering all archbishops, bishops, vicars, abbots, and other dignitaries of the Church of Rome, and all others exercising jurisdiction by authority of the Pope, together with all Jesuits and regular priests, to depart from the kingdom before the 20th November, and all popish societies, convents, seminaries, and schools were to be dissolved at once. This was followed by a number of others couched in the similar strain, and large numbers of priests were sent to the coasts for transportation. The chapels opened in Dublin and in the principal cities were closed, and the clergy who remained were obliged to have recourse to various devices to escape their pursuers. Dr. Talbot was arrested and thrown into prison, 1678, where he remained till death put an end to his sufferings, in November 1680. Though both the king and Ormond were convinced of his innocence, yet such was the state of Protestant frenzy at the time that they dared not move a hand to assist him. Dr. Plunkett, after leading the vigilance of his pursuers for some time, was arrested in 1679. He was brought to trial at Dundalk, but his accusers feared to trust an Irish court. The case was postponed, and, in the meantime, his enemies arranged that he should be brought to London for trial. Every care was taken to obtain a verdict. The judges refused a delay to bring over witnesses for their defence, and made no attempt to conceal their bias and their hatred for the Catholic religion, the very profession of which was sufficient to condemn him in their eyes. He was executed at Tyburn, 1681, and he was the last victim to suffer death in England on account of the plot of Oates and his perjured accomplices. But in Ireland Ormond had no intention of dropping the persecution. Several of the bishops and vicar-generals were arrested, and either held as prisoners or banished, and spies were sent through the country to track down those who defied the proclamation of banishment by remaining to watch over their diocese on the accession of james the second february sixteen eighty five the catholics of ireland had reason to hope for an improvement of their position and this time at least they were not disappointed the duke of ormond was recalled and the earl of clarendon was sent over as lord lieutenant he was instructed to maintain the act of settlement but at the same time to allow catholics full freedom of worship and to consider them eligible for civil and military appointment with him was associated as military commander colonel richard talbot earl of Tyrconnell, brother of the late archbishop of dublin in accordance with the well-known wishes of the king catholic officers were appointed in the army catholics were allowed once more to act as sheriffs magistrates and judges and steps were taken to see that the corporations which had been closed against catholics for years should be no longer safe protestant boroughs the irish bishops hastened to present an address of welcome to the king and they were assured of his majesty's favour and protection religious communities of both men and women were reopened in dublin and in the principal cities throughout ireland and synods of the clergy were held to restore order and discipline irish catholics as a body were delighted with the royal edicts in favour of religious toleration but the small protestant minority in the country were alarmed at seeing catholics treated as equals and particularly at the prospect of seeing the act of settlement upset and their titles to their estates questioned by the real owners whom they despoiled twenty years before Their fears were increased when the Earl of Clarendon, who they regarded as in some sort their protector, was recalled, 1687, to make way for the Earl of Tarconnell, as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. The new Lord Lieutenant was far from being perfect, nor was he always prudent in his policy or his actions. But if his conduct towards the small body of Protestants in Ireland be compared with that of his predecessors for more than a century, or with that of his successors towards the Irish people... He ought to be regarded as one of the most enlightened administrators of his age the revolution that broke out in england sixteen eighty eight the arrival of william of orange sixteen eighty eight and the flight of king james to france were calculated to stir up strife in ireland though it is remarkable as showing the fair treatment they had received that a great body of the irish protestant bishops were in favour of supporting james against the usurper and that it was necessary to have recourse to lying stories of an intended general massacre to stir up opposition to the king. Tyconnell, who had long foreseen such a course of events, had made wonderful preparations, considering the situation of the country and the constitution of his council. Had James II contented himself with inducing Louis the Fourteenth to send arms and ammunition to Ireland, and to utilize to the fullest the splendid French navy, Connell, aided by the able irish officers who flocked to his standard from all parts of europe might have bidden defiance to all invaders but james insisted on returning to ireland he landed in march sixteen eighty nine and proceeded to dublin where national parliament was summoned to meet in may as a result of allowing the majority of the people to have some voice in the selection of the members the house of commons in sixteen eighty nine was, was almost as catholic as that of sixteen sixty two had been protestant in the house of lords the protestants might have been in the majority had all the spiritual and temporal peers taken their seats but as several of the bishops were absent from the country and as many of the waylords lords had either joined the party of william or were waiting to see how events would go few of them put in an appearance from the beginning it was clear that the ideals of james were not the ideals of the irish parliament he wished merely to make ireland the stepping-stone to secure his own return to england while the representatives of ireland were determined to provide for the welfare and independence of their own country they began by laying down the principle that no laws passed in england had any binding force in ireland unless they were approved by the king lords and commons of ireland they next affirmed the principle of liberty of conscience for all whether catholic or protestant thereby setting an example which unfortunately was not followed either in england or in later parliamentary assemblies in ireland they decreed further that for the future catholics should not be obliged to pay tithes for the support of the protestant ministers but rather that both catholics and protestants should contribute to the support of their respective pastors a system which no impartial man could condemn as unfair they repealed the acts of settlement and explanation and declared that those who held estates in ireland in october sixteen forty one should be restored to them or if they were dead that their heirs should enter into possession The soldiers and adventurers were deprived thereby of the property which they had acquired by legalized robbery, and had held for over twenty years. But it was provided that those who had purchased lands from the Cromwellian grantees should be compensated from the estates of those who were then in rebellion against the king. In view of what had taken place in Ulster under James I, of what the Earl of Wentworth had in contemplation for portions of Munster and Connaught, had his plans not miscarried, and of what had been done by Cromwell in nearly all parts of Catholic Ireland— The action of the parliament in sixteen eighty nine was not merely justifiable it was extremely moderate an act of attainder was also passed against those persons who had either declared for william of orange or who had left the country lest they should be regarded as taking sides with james the second such men were called upon to return within a certain time unless they wished to incur the penalty of being regarded as traitors and punished as such it is not true to say that there was any secrecy observed in regard to this act but that knowledge of it was kept from the parties concerned till the time limit had expired. It was discussed publicly in the presence of the Protestant bishops and Protestant representatives, and its provisions were well known in a short time in England and Ireland. Derry and Enniskillen had declared against King James towards the end of 1688, and all efforts to capture these two cities had failed. In August 1689 the Duke of Schomberg arrived at Bangor with an army of about 15,000 men, but little was done till the arrival of william of orange in june sixteen ninety Had the irish and french military advisers had a free hand they might easily have held their own even though william's army was composed largely of veteran troops drawn from nearly every country of europe had james taken their advice and played a waiting game by retiring behind the shannon so as to allow time to have his own royal levies trained and to hold william in ireland when his presence on the continent against louis the fourteenth was so urgently required the situation would have been awkward for his opponent, and even when James decided to advance, had he gone forward boldly, as was suggested to him, and insisted upon giving battle north of Dundalk, in the narrow pass between the mountains and the sea, William's cavalry would have been useless. The issue might have been different. But with a leader who could not make up his mind, whether to give battle or to retreat, and who, having at last decided to fight in the worst place he could have selected sent away his heavy guns towards Dublin, with the intention of ordering a retirement, almost when the decisive struggle had begun. It was impossible for his followers to expect any other result but defeat. In the Battle of the Boyne, the brunt of the fighting fell upon the Irish recruits, and both the Irish cavalry and infantry offered a stubborn resistance. James fled to Dublin, and in a short time left Ireland. 1690 the Irish and French commanders then fell back on the line of the Shannon, according to their original scheme. They defended Limerick so bravely that William was obliged to raise the siege, but the capture of Anthlone 1691, and the defeat of the Irish forces at Aughrim turned the scales in favour of William. Towards the end of August 1691 the second siege of Limerick began. Sarsfield, who was in supreme command, made a vigorous defence, But as it was impossible to hold out indefinitely, and as there seemed to be no longer any hope of French assistance, he opened up negotiations with General Ginkle for a surrender of the city. As a result of these negotiations, the Treaty of Limerick was signed on the 3rd October, 1691. End of chapter 10, part 2